We are in Genesis chapter 35, and we'll get right to it. Genesis chapter 35 is where we are. Wonderful to see you all, especially guests. Thanks for coming. And regulars, eh. <clears throat> Genesis 35, want to see something? Look at this. Then, so that means something preceded it. <laughs> That's why then is plunked in there. Something, some things occurred before the then. And after those things, then God, do you know he wasn't mentioned at all in the prior chapter? Genesis 34 was a horrific chapter. There was a physical assault on a gal. Her brothers retaliated and killed the perpetrators and beyond. Women and children from that place where this assault took place were taken captive? I mean, terrible. And all through 34, I defy you to find once where God's name is mentioned. It's almost as if 34 is what you get when man does his own thing. But now 35, we're going to see what happens when God is involved. So then God said, should not be taken lightly. He's a communicator. Don't have to squeeze information out of him. He delights in revealing things, especially to those who know him. Then God said to Jacob. Remarkable that God is having conversation with Jacob. I'll tell you why. For the last 10 years, we don't have one recorded episode of God doing that. The last time God spoke to Jacob was when he was in Padan Aram with Laban. One was a bigger deceiver than the other. Remember all that? And God said in Genesis 31:13, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Arise, leave this land where Laban was, and return to the land of your birth. So God said to him, go back to Bethel. Go back to the land of promise. Ten years ago, God said that to him. My heavens. Ten years have passed and for the first time, in that period of time, God speaks. Why the silence? You know, there's something interesting about God. Um, we know that he's a communicating God, but he's also real smart. And therefore, he doesn't waste his words on those who aren't going to do a thing about it anyway. That's just the way it is. Therefore, the key to understanding God and his word, the key uh, is not uh, Greek, Hebrew, and Bible study skills, though, though that surely doesn't hurt. But the real key to understanding the Bible, unlocking the scriptures, is a willingness to do what it says. Why should God reveal more when we are not doing what he already has revealed? So the right response to revelation begets more revelation. That's how it is. Jacob did not respond well to what God had said all along. Why should God say more? But things are different now. Jacob's heart is changing. How? Through rough times. I hate rough times. So do you. I hate hurt. So do you. I don't like pain. I prefer pleasure. So do you. But the ministry of hurt and trouble and pain sometimes bears more fruit 
than the ministry of pleasure. And so Jacob has trouble now. He lost a daughter. His two sons took matters into their own hands and created more problems than they sought to solve. Surely the people at the place where his daughter was raped are seeking revenge now against Jacob. His whole life is passing before him. He knew God. He really had a personal encounter with him at this place called Bethel years ago. He drifted, did his own thing. God said, go back to Bethel. He gets close, but ever so far. He comes back into the land for sure, but he settles in a place called Shechem. 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 Hey, why don't you try saying that with me? It's good for this time of year when we all got stuff in the throat. That's why God created Hebrew. So you ready? Shechem. Now please apologize to the person in front of you. Yeah, Shechem. So, ah, stuff is happening. He went adrift spiritually and is bearing the fruit thereof. Now he's open. We get opened up when there's pain and trouble and stuff like that. So sometimes God allows it. Now Jacob made a promise to God 30 years ago. He hasn't fulfilled it yet. See, he was with Laban for 20 years, came back, and he was at this place, Shechem, for 10 years. 20 plus 10, 30 years. Jacob made a promise in Genesis 28. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if. So you're going to see, this is an if-then proposition. I don't know if you can do this with God, but Jacob did. He made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety. Then, see, here's the then. If you do this, God, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I'll surely give a tenth to you. That was his vow way back, Genesis 28, 30 years ago. God kept his end of the bargain. Jacob did not his. So God has got to get him out of Shechem. And he's so close. Do you know Bethel was 30 miles away? Geographically so near and yet spiritually so far. And uh, God wants to move him to repentance. And so sometimes God allows us lovingly to experience the consequence of our own misbehavior to soften up our heart so as to turn back to him. What's so important about Bethel? What does Bethel mean? House of God, house of God. Bait, El. Bait means house. El is a form of God's name, like Elohim, El Elyon, El Shaddai, even Names like Joel has the name of God. Joel means uh, son of God's right hand, something like that. Uh, God wants him back at Beit El. Why? That was the place of blessing. Look, look, look. Jacob has drifted. He met God at Bethel, but he drifted from God over all these years. How do you get, how do you get a wayward believer back? Well, reminders by Almighty God that you can come back. <laughs> I mean, the fact that God is still speaking to him is quite a gracious reminder. I haven't abandoned you, Jacob. I haven't lost sight. Of... And here's what you do if you're someone even today who's sort of drifting from God. You know him, but you've drifted. Um, 
Go back to the place of blessing. For Jacob, it was Beth El. The place of blessing for you might be, oh, I remember the days when I read God's word regularly. That was such a blessing. Well, then go back to that place. Oh, I remember the times when I would have daily conversation with God. That was such a place of blessing. Go back to that place. I remember the days when I didn't do what I am now doing. That was a blessing. Well, then stop doing what you are now doing. It, is, it really isn't rocket science. The door for return is open. This is the grace of God. Go back. You who have drifted for 30 years, come back to the place of blessing. Meet me there again. Anew. Beit El, house of God. Jacob made partnerships with the people. They were Canaanites in Shechem, and it was a really bad deal. Um, Shechem is a real place. Today, it's called Nablus. Maybe you heard about Nablus in the news. It's a Palestinian West Bank city. The West Bank is the west side of the Jordan River. It is uh, biblical Judea and Samaria. That's what the West Bank is. Nablus is the most populated Palestinian city in the West Bank. I have been there. It's a real place. It was Shechem. Now it is called Nablus. How did it get called Nablus? Well, when the Romans moved in, they named it Neapolis. And so from Neapolis, you get Nablus. It's Shechem. I stood on a mountain, Mount Gerizim, which is right across from another, Mount Ebal. They're both mentioned in the Bible. In the valley between is Nablus, Shechem. It's a hotbed of uh, terroristic activity. The roots of it are there. Once we went to Israel and ministered to an elite group of uh, Israeli military folks um, who are experts at disguise. Uh, They go into areas like Nablus disguising themselves as one of the residents so they can listen in on conversations and and in hope uh, of preempting a, a terrorist attack. And they're experts at extraction. They could go in and get someone out real quickly without killing that person. They don't want to kill the person. Why? Because of the person's intelligence value. They don't labor under the limitations we seem increasingly to be laboring under, and that is we don't want to be mean to those who want to kill us. We want to be nice. But the Israelis are not slowed down by that. So if someone's intent is to kill innocent men, women, and children, the Israelis don't mind being assertive (laughs) in extracting information. You know, the Israelis are not bothered by profiling. They just figure out there's a higher statistical probability of certain types of people doing harm than others. So they're not afraid Uh, that that's politically incorrect. uh, The Israelis know for sure that not every Muslim is a terrorist, but they know that just about every terrorist is a Muslim. So they don't mind giving attention, more attention to some rather than others. So this unit goes into Nablus to do what they could to avert uh, catastrophe. Tell you what's interesting. You can stand on a rise looking down into biblical 
Shechem, now Nablus, and you see a very, very tightly populated, congested area, which is a refugee camp for Palestinians. Uh, they're displaced and homeless, and so the Palestinian government set up a refugee camp for them. Terrible conditions. Crowded, impoverished, all the rest. It's perplexing when you go there that this is the case because you're seeing this area, the refugee camp, and just off about a quarter mile away, it's within walking distance, is a rather beautiful residential area with homes and apartments unoccupied. What in the world? You have people crowded in over here, and you have nobody living over here in this real nice place. Nice enough such that you and I would be comfortable there. How did it get there? The Israeli government built it in the West Bank. Paid for it, built it, so as to relieve the agony of the Palestinian people in this refugee camp. And yet, not one of those Palestinian refugees has moved into this housing development. Why? Because then the Palestinian leadership would lose the propaganda advantage. American and European journalists in particular go film it and that thus leave us with the impression Israel is a racist apartheid state. But that doesn't really square with the facts when you go there. And you see this. I can show you photos of it. I almost planned on doing it today, except I don't know how to work all this equipment. Uh, and I don't know how to change the temperature. We built such a marvelous building. It's so complicated. You need like an advanced engineering degree to put the lights on. So since I, I only know theology, so we're sweating in here, and I don't have a picture for you. But, but I can show it to you. The juxtaposition of this refugee area and this open, beautiful residential area. Folks, do not believe everything you see in the news. In fact, you might be better off believing none of what you see in the news. You know what I mean? So that is Shechem. That's, uh, that's Nablus. It's a real place. One of the reasons why I encourage everyone who can to go to Israel is when you come back, you'll have the experience I did when I sat down to study Genesis 35. My goodness, I was brought back in my mind to that place. Nablus, Shechem, Bethel. Bethel is 10 miles north of Jerusalem. These are real places. You can go there. You can visit these places and come back and read about them in the Bible. So anyway, that's... Uh, that's Shechem, modern-day uh, Nablus, but God doesn't want Jacob staying there. He wants him going back to Bethel, the place of blessing. Jacob got in big trouble in Shechem, uh, and now he's really scared um, because surely the Shechemites and their Canaanite brethren will seek revenge. And so Jacob's heart now is open, and he's willing to hear from God. And hence it says in verse 1, God said, to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. It was 30 years ago. Um, Rebecca, uh, Jacob's mother, said, you got to leave town. Esau is really mad. You know, you kind of deceived him out of his birthright and blessing. He wants to kill you. He'll calm down. Just take off for a little bit. And then when, when you know, he comes to his senses, you'll come back home. 
that was kind of the plan. So Jacob, very close to his mom, follows her advice, takes off, and on the way, he meets up with God at Bethel in this magnificent vision. Remember with the ladder and angels and stuff? That's when God speaks to him and says, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to bring you back to this place. God said, go back to that place. You named it Bethel, Jacob, house of God. And you have drifted from the outs, on the outskirts, on the perimeter of the house of God. You forfeited communion with me over all these years. Come back to that place of blessing. So God says, arise, go up to Bethel, live there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Go back to the place of sacred memories. Come back home. Folks, Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, that one verse, ought to be a source of great encouragement for all of us who are drifting from God. Can I come back? Yes. In light of what I've done, can I come home? Can I get back to Bethel? The answer is yes. Over all these years, God kept notice of Jacob's whereabouts. Jacob took his eyes off God. God never took his eyes off Jacob. When you're part of a covenant with Almighty God, he keeps his word. Though we be unfaithful, the New Testament says, he remains faithful. Genesis 35 verse 1, God's grace. I'm still talking to you. Jacob, you're still mine. Jacob, you've been at your worst. Now I'll show you I can be at my best in response. God spoke to him, and it was the grace of God that softened Jacob's heart, maybe yours too. It's never too late to come home. Now there's consequence for having drifted. I shouldn't paint too rosy a picture, for sure. On the other hand, the door to coming home is still open if you're one of God's kids. There's no reason for us to stay out of fellowship with God for too long, confess sin, change direction, say, God, I'm coming home. That's what Jacob is doing here. And so verse 2, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you. Now, folks, this is amazing. For the first time, Jacob is assuming the spiritual leadership of his household. He had influence on them up until now, but it wasn't good. Now it's good. What motivated him to assume the role which was his by God, the spiritual leader of the household? You know what it was? The grace of God. My heavens. Verse 1. God is still willing to have conversation, relationship, communion with me. Think about it. It's over. Listen, the fear of God is not the correct motivation. I got to get right with God or he will punish me. That is not the right motivation. Even if it's true, that is not the right. The only correct biblical motivation is our response to the grace of God. The Bible says, for the love of Christ constrains me. His love towards us is what constrains us to yield and submit and obey. Not the threats of God. Do not be improperly motivated in the Christian life or you won't stay motivated for too long. It's this marvelous grace of God. Though I depart from him, he will never depart from me. Though I turn a deaf ear to him, he will never cease to be aware of me. Though I have nothing to say to him, he always waits and is ready 
to establish conversation with me. Though I have drifted and lost out on a lot, still the door to return to Beit El is still, is still open. It is the grace of God. The New Testament says where sin abounds. Boy, did it in Jacob's family. But then it says grace superabounds. The only proper biblical motivation, therefore, for changing our ways is the grace of God. Jacob is responding now. He takes the lead and he tells those in his household, put away foreign gods which are among you. Now, if he tells them that, he knows it was a problem. He never dressed it up until now. Finally. He's getting right with God, and he's getting right with his family. And he wants them to clean house. Where'd they pick up these foreign gods along the way? I mean, Rachel, Jacob's wife, before she left home, stole her father's household idols. Remember this? Well, the kids are probably thinking what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Hey, I got to tell you something, parents and grandparents, we could... Declare truth to our kids all we want. We can tell them how we want them to live, our kids and grandkids. But I got to tell you, mostly they're going to do what they see us doing. They're just doing what they saw their mom and grandmom do. She's stolen, is worshiping false gods. Why not they? She could speak to them all. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like people tell their kids, yeah, I, will, I want you to stay in school and stay off drugs. sort of inconsistent. You know, I want you to I want you to walk with God and be faithful to him and therefore I'm sending you to church. Cuz it's important. See you when you get back. They may hear a little bit of what we have to say, but mostly they're going to do what they see us do. So yeah, Rachel had got her false gods from her dad, and uh, other family members picked them up along the way. He says, you've got to get rid of them. And then he says, purify yourselves and change your garments. Now, what's up with that? Is that like a, you know, what? take a bath and put on different clothes? What's up? It had nothing to do with personal hygiene. It was a, a um, spiritually symbolic thing in Old Testament times. It meant uh, renewal, dedication, consecration. This is the equivalent of a believer today rededicating his or her life to Christ. Literally, you clean up your act. You get rid of idols. You you make this the first day of the rest of your life. You do not let your past determine your destiny. You let your future determine your destiny. There's Bethel still to which you can return. In your past, you were at Shechem. It was a bad move. Don't let that determine your tomorrow. Bethel still wait. Clean up your act. Take a bath. Put on new garments. That's kind of what's going on. He's acting now like a spiritual leader, motivated by God's grace. Now, he knows before he and his family go back to meet with God again at Bethel, you can't be going with idols in the back seat. You can't practice that inconsistency. For crying out loud, if you're making an intent to focus anew on Almighty God, you have to rid yourself on those things which are distractions, false idols. Well, you say, this is not for me. I don't have like a statue that I worship. Yeah, but an idol is anything or anyone that we depend on for the stuff only God can give. 
Therefore, a modern-day idol could be our vocation. You know, that's where I get my strokes. I don't need the praise of God. I, I get them from my job. Or it could be a relationship. A relationship with someone could actually take the place of relationship with God. It could be a stock portfolio. It could be popularity, fame. Who knows? I mean, what These are modern-day idols. And the believer who says, I've drifted, I want to get right with God, I want to go back to Beit El. Well, you, gotta, you have to get rid of these idols, these things that have distracted you from Almighty God. And that's what Jacob is instructing his whole household to do. So he says, furthermore, in verse 3, let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I'll make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob realized that. But why? Not until now. God was with him for 30 years. Jacob is stating that now. This is the God who's been with me wherever I've gone. He was with me in Adon Aram. He was with me even when I was in Shechem. I have evidence now of the fact that he never left me. Why didn't he know that during these 30 years? I'll tell you why. One of the consequences of a Christian, a believer sinning against God, is not the loss of God's interest in us. And it is not the forfeiture of salvation, but it is the forfeiture of the joy of our salvation. It could be possible to know of the existence and presence of God, as Jacob did at Bethel, wander from him, and thus not have a sense of his presence as we go through life. Therefore, the most miserable person on earth is a Christian who knows better. A Christian who's running spiritually adrift and sort of intellectually knows that God is there, but doesn't have his fresh, vibrant sense of his communion. The relationship is intact, but the conversation is not there. It's been forfeited through sin. That's why one such as David says, please, oh God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. God doesn't have to restore the salvation of a saved one because he never took it away. But he may have to restore the joy of salvation because sometimes we compromise it when we quench his spirit in us, and that's through sin. That's what happened to Jacob. Finally, he's waking up after 30 years. Oh, my goodness. Through all that time when I thought I was on my own, when I acted as if I was on my own, I wasn't. God was there. But I made no recourse to him until now. So anyway, that's what he does. He realizes God has been with him all along and says in verse 4, it says in verse 4, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. So, um, so ladies or, or guys, uh, everyone who's wearing earrings today, anybody, could you just raise your hand? Let's just, yeah. I'm just saying. It's like the Bible. The earrings, apparently, it's like a no-no, right? Do you know there are people who would say that? Meaning all you ladies wearing earrings have to take them off, you know, get rid of them. And people who say that are missing something. But don't, don't, don't you miss it. It's this. There is a difference between biblical practices and biblical principles. Of the two, which one do you think 
never changes. Principles, but practices change. For instance, in the New Testament, it says when women are coming into a worship assembly, they must have their head covered. Well, all the ladies who do not have their head covered, please raise your hands. Holy Toledo, my goodness. First you're doing the earring things, now you're doing... This is just a beginning. Who knows what's going to happen next? May end up rooting for the cowboys or somebody. It's a drift. It's like a spiritual... Wow. Thanks for the response. So, now what did that mean? In the old days, if a woman came into a worship assembly without her head covered, it would uh, have this... Uh, implication. I am no longer going to be in submission to my husband's spiritual authority, and not only that, I'm looking for a substitute for him. So it would be a lady flirtatious and on the prowl. So that may be true of, of, of some of you, but probably... We don't conclude that just because, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so that's an example of a biblical practice that doesn't continue, but the principle does. Biblical principle of order in the household and staying faithful to your mate. My people are notorious at blurring the distinction between biblical practices and biblical principles. For instance, have you ever seen Orthodox Jewish men with long side curls? They're called peyote, peyote. And uh, um, in the Orthodox Jewish community, they groom their male children from when they're just little kids to grow these things. I mean, they, have a, they may have like a crew cut, but then they're, they're letting these things grow long. It's just it's quite amazing to see. Why do they do that? Well, there's a passage in the Old Testament that says, do not round the corners of your hair and, you know, cut your sideburns kind of a deal. This guy have nothing better to do than to be concerned about how we style our hair. So that can't really be what's going on. What is going on, is you, if you look to it, is that kind of stuff is, was part of Canaanite religious worship. It had nothing to do with the hairstyle. It had a connotation in those days whereby Israelites, who were called to be holy, set apart, were joining with the Canaanites in worshiping false Canaanite gods. God says, come out from among them. So that's the biblical principle that continues. We Christians are called to be holy. We're not supposed to take on the customs, particularly the unbiblical customs of the culture of the day. But that's reflected in different practices today. So today, hairstyle, I mean, that's not going to give it away. You see what I mean? So here, what's with the earrings? To the Canaanites amongst whom Israel lived but were to be apart, to the Canaanites, the earrings were magical amulets like a talisman. This is how you make contact with God through this object. And Jacob said, don't do it anymore. See, his family were doing it. You don't need a magical talisman when you could have direct access to Almighty God. You're part of the covenant he made. Just talk to him. You don't need magic and all this stuff. That's what was, that's what was going on. Do you remember when Aaron felt obligated to make a golden calf, you know, to appease the people? And he said, hey, everyone, bring your gold and silver earrings and throw it into the flame, you know? 
We'll see what happens. Remember when he said that? Well, the lady in the prior class said, it looks like the Bible is only prohibiting gold and silver earrings. Therefore, ladies, if you're wearing those cheap plastic ones, no prob. You know what I mean? You're okay. If it's plastic. So, anyway, you've got to be careful about confusion. If you um, uh, um, think biblical practices are the same as biblical principles, you are probably a legalistic Christian. You are probably living by and putting pressure on those around you to live by certain dress codes or hairstyle codes or I don't know what, that the Bible has nothing to do with. That are matters of Christian liberty. They're up to the believer. The Bible neither legislates for or, or against it. So you want to be careful not to confuse biblical practices with biblical principles. You know, like makeup and jewelry and stuff like that. I, for one, and I know all, all those guys are just grateful to God um, for creating makeup. You, you, it just, just makes life, life easier for us. Thank you so much for helping us out. Because it's like before lunch, you know what I'm saying? And so it's nice the way you look. Keep up the good, good work. What did this guy say? The difference between men and women. A man goes to sleep at night, wakes up in the morning. He's essentially the same. A woman goes to sleep at night, wakes up in the morning, and somehow it looks like she's deteriorated <laughs> over the night. It's kind of a... I'm just... Just saying. It's just. Check out your mirror. <laughs> so then what he does when he gets the earrings, look what he does. Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Don't you want to like get a shovel and go, <laughs> go over there and start digging for crying out loud? It's under an oak tree somewhere over there. So check out this verse 5. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and, and they didn't pursue the sons of Jacob. That's weird. Uh, Jacob and his family were vulnerable. Remember, uh, uh, his a daughter was raped. The sons, my heavens, they overreacted. They killed all kinds of people in that place, and then they carted off. Uh, women and children. Uh, now they're in jeopardy as they pass through Canaanite territory. Every Canaanite city is going to say, there they are, let's get them. Look what they did to our relatives in Shechem. I mean, Jacob knows this, they all know this. But somehow a great terror fell upon those surrounding cities such that they didn't pursue the sons of Jacob. How'd that happen? Folks, that's almighty God for crying out loud. And that is the only explanation for the existence of Jews today. God intervened to provide a kind of hedge of protection amongst Jews, even down to this very day. Verse 5 is still being done. Let me um, expand upon this. May 14, 1948, Israel is reconstituted as an independent state. Unheard of after thousands of years. A people are brought back, reconstituted in their land? Holy moly. Well, the Arab residents of the land were not happy. So the next day, May 15th, they inaugurated a concerted effort to wipe out the Jews and drive them into the sea. So this was uh, an attack by multiple Arab nations. 
before they attacked the Jews, who, by the way, had no army at the time, had nothing, and they're up against multiple well-equipped armies. I don't care how brilliant you think your military strategy is, it's not brilliant enough to overcome those odds. And before the attack took place, the Arab leadership told the Arab residents of the land, move out temporarily. Give us a chance to wipe out the Jews, and then you'll come back home. Well, lo and behold, wiping out the Jews didn't happen. It was a surprise to everyone. How could this fledgling nation with no military of its own survive the attack? It was a surprise to everyone. 1948. Well, now those all, almost 700,000 of Arab people who left, not at Israeli gun point, where are guns? But at the council of their own Arab leadership, now they're out of the land. Ah, so now those almost 700,000 want to return to the land under what's called the right of return. And it is one of the bargaining chips in the so-called peace talks between the Palestinians and the Israelis. That is, Israel must grant an unconditional right of return to all those who left the land in 1948. Now, since those 600, 700,000 Arab folks left the land, they've multiplied. These things happen. You have children and grandchildren. So now, if Israel granted the unconditional right of return. From a demographic, a population point of view, the Israeli citizenry would be overwhelmed. Look, there's approximately eight million residents in Israel. Approximately two million are Arab citizens of Israel. That leaves five and a half to six million Jews. That's it. Now, the Two million Arab residents does not take into account all the residents of places like Nablus, which I mentioned. They're considered Palestinian citizens. You see what I mean? So if you let in now the millions of those uh, Arab peoples under the right of return, then the Israeli population will absolutely be inundated. So the Israeli government is not going to do it. Of course, our esteemed president wants them to. Uh, I'm just stating a fact. This is not an editorial comment. I'm just trying to tell you that's part of his agenda and John Kerry's to get the Israelis to open up the doors to uh, millions of Arabs, make them citizens of Israel, so that the one Jewish state, 50-plus Muslim-dominated states, but the one Jewish state uh, is being pressured to allow the right of return. So that's what happened. So on May 15, 1948, there's this attack, and somehow it is rebuffed. I think it's because of God's intervention. Well, then the Arab nations uh, begin to respect somehow these, these Jews in a different way. It's almost like a great terror fell upon them because it wasn't until years later that they attacked again. There was one in 56, but a big one in 67. You know, maybe as the Six-Day War, even though Israel again was attacked by Egypt and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon, multiple Arab armies outmanned out 50 to 1. Six-Day War, 
In six days, somehow, Israel emerged victorious. How in the world does this happen? In 67, Israeli paratroopers, for the first time in over 2,000 years, opened up the old part of Jerusalem, including what we call the Wailing Wall, what they call the Western Wall. It's the... Uh, it's uh, a retaining wall of the temple which once stood there. It's a very holy site in Judaism. For the first time in 2,000 years, Israeli paratroopers uh, gave access to the Western Wall for prayer. You see pictures of it, people at the Wailing Wall. That didn't happen until 1967, which means from 1948 to 67, though the Jews were in the land, they still didn't have access to their holiest site. Why not? Because it was under the control of Jordan. But when Jordan joined in the attack in 67, then they all lost. Israel took some land, including the Western Wall. You know what else they had? What's called the Temple Mount. It's a platform on which stood the first and second temple. Now which stands a very holy site in Islam, the Dome of the Rock. Why didn't Israel just take control of it? Because they were trying to make an effort at peace. And so they gave control of the Temple Mount to the Muslim religious leadership and remains in their hands to this day. So if you go to Israel today and you're smack dab in the center of Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish state, still that territory is in Muslim control. And if they don't want you to go up on it, you don't go up on it. You can't bring Bibles up there. You cannot pray. And they will listen in on your conversations. Why did Israel do that? It was a good faith effort to try to make peace. Anyway, that's 1967. Well, the Arab nations now are really filled with a kind of terror, a kind of respect. Why can't we exterminate these doggone Jews, for crying out loud? Well, six more years go by. And then you get 1973, another attack by multiple Arab armies called the Yom Kippur War, the holiest site in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. You know what Jews are doing around the world on Yom Kippur? They are not eating. It's a fast day, repenting from sin. What a good day to attack. It's a brilliant military strategy. I mean, your soldiers haven't had anything to eat. They're hungry. Not only that, people have laid down their arms, and they're in their houses of worship. What a good day to attack. That's when the attack comes. An unbelievable surprise. From Syria comes a massive tank onslaught. We go to this place today. It's in the Golan Heights. It's called the Valley of Tears. We sit there. It looks like a very beautiful field now, but it was horrific in 73. Surprise attack by the Syrian tank force against just a handful of Israeli tank tanks on the Golan Heights. This is desperate. If Syria overwhelms this handful of Israeli tanks, takes the Golan Heights high ground, they will continue to move westward to Tel Aviv, one of the major Israeli cities on the Mediterranean sea coast. They'll take Tel Aviv and goodbye Israel. And yet the outcome was Israel turns back the Syrian assault. How? Well, you can read about the strategy they used and all the rest. When we go to this place, we tell the story, but that has nothing to do with it. I think God just struck terror into Israel's uh, uh, enemies, the invading forces. And so in 1973, once again, Israel rebuffed the attack. What's up? 
Does God favor the Jews more than anyone else? No. Absolutely not. But has God blessed the Jews with spiritual privilege? He hasn't blessed others. Yes. What have the Jews done with it? More than any other people group on earth, the Jews, my people, have squandered spiritual privilege more than any other people group on earth. What is God's response? You're still the apple of my eye. I will never leave you or forsake you. I made a promise of land, and I will keep my word in spite of you. That's why God preserves the Jews alive, not because they're of more value than anybody, maybe even of less value, but the existence of Jews in the land today testifies to the integrity of God who promised to keep them there. Listen to me. Satan knows this. If he can stir up Israel's enemies to drive her into the sea, then Satan can turn to us, the church of Jesus Christ, next and say, you're hopeful that God will keep his promise of heaven to you. But why should you be hopeful when he didn't keep his promise of promised land to the Jews? What's at stake is not Israel. It's the integrity of Almighty God. Is he a liar? If he lied to the Jews and failed to fulfill his promises to them, then why, not, why, doesn't, why might not he lie to us and fail to keep his promises to us? Can you see what's going on? That's why anti-Semitism always was and is now on the rise again. It's quite perplexing to me. One of our allies, Saudi Arabia, is now planning on building a wall 600 miles long between it and Iraq. Why? They want to keep ISIS terrorists out of Saudi Arabia. We would applaud the effort. The Saudi Arabian government has a responsibility to protect its citizenry. I haven't heard thus far one word of outrage about this wall from the United Nations, the European Union, or our government. But Israel did something similar a few years ago constructed a security fence. It's only a concrete wall for a short space. Only 5% of it is a concrete wall. The rest is a fence. You could look through it. It looks like something in your backyard. The only difference is it's radar controlled, and if you touch it, you will be burnt to a crisp. <laughs> it's a security fence, and since Israel set it up, they've cut down terrorism almost by 100%. We would surely say a government is justified in protecting its citizenry, just as Saudi Arabia is trying to do. Not a fence, not for a few miles, 600 miles long. Why is there not international outrage about that? I'll tell you why. And we're foolish to expect it. There is an irrational interest in eradicating the world of the Jews. Why? It has nothing to do with the Jews. It has to do with the integrity of Almighty God. If he can't keep us alive, he can't sustain you in eternity either. That's what's at stake. So I encourage people not so much to be pro-Israel, because they make plenty of mistakes, commit plenty of sin. No, 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 no. But just make sure you're on God's side with reference to Israel. That's all I'm trying to say. Now, increasingly, I'm not sure our government is on the right side. 
it's fascinating to me that our president is willing to meet with just about anybody except the leader of the only true democracy in the Middle East. It's fascinating to me, a couple days ago, uh, Palestinian terrorists stabbed 11 people on a bus in Tel Aviv. This man lives in Tul Karam, which is another West Bank Palestinian village. Israel sets up checkpoints between the West Bank and Israel proper to keep this kind of thing from happening. The world's opinion has turned against Israel because of their dehumanizing checkpoints. It is terrible to have that and to have Palestinians have to wait online to cross from place to place. I agree. But what are you supposed to do when the Palestinian community doesn't even police its own? It not only prohibits terrorism, it encourages it. So this guy snuck past one of the checkpoints, gets himself on a bus in Tel Aviv, takes a knife, and stabs 11 Israelis. There was a car following this bus. Uh, in it were three Israeli correctional officers. They shot the man in the leg as he was running away. He said, correctional officers, they carry guns? Are you kidding? Kindergarten teachers carry guns. They don't worry about concealed handgun license there. They have revealed handgun practice. Not everybody, if you've served in the military, you're active or a reservist, you can wear a long gun on your shoulder and you strap a 45 right there. And it is a very good thing, they think, because if something like this happens before the authorities get there, you're a citizen protecting your fellow citizens, you can shoot the guy. That's kind of what, kind of what they do. But they shot him in the leg, Why they? they must be bad shots. No, 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 they want him alive. Once again, for interrogation. Once again, uh, you know, Israelis are not all that concerned about being nice to those who want to kill them. They're sort of not like the United States. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful not to abuse the rights and privileges of these whose stated purpose in life is to kill us. We've got to be nice. You know, Israel is just not slowed down by that. Do you know Israel doesn't worry about uh, profiling? It's like a dirty word here. Targeting a particular people group. Israel doesn't worry about that. You know why? Israelis know not every Muslim is a terrorist, but Israelis also know just about every terrorist is a Muslim. Just about. Of the 1819 who attacked us on 9-11, there weren't too many evangelical Christians. <laughs> not one Baptist. Not one Orthodox Jew. They were all Muslims. Most from Saudi Arabia. Israel simply, simply looks at the fact, and they don't mind targeting on people groups most likely to do harm to their citizenry. What in the world has happened to our will to protect our borders and our citizenry? You tell me. Our president thinks Gitmo is an embarrassment, so he stated in State of the Union message. Well, what do we do with the folks there who want to kill us? They're going to be set free so as to try it again. Israel just thinks that's stupid. It is stupid. It is stupid. Well, anyway, these 11 were stabbed a couple weeks before. Uh, four in a synagogue during worship were sliced to death with a meat cleaver carrying Palestinian. 
But what happened in Paris led to such international outrage, millions gathered in that city to state their objection to terrorism. Everyone who's anyone was there, except our president. He was busy. Uh, where's the outrage when 11 innocent men, women, and children are stabbed on a bus and four Jews are, are sliced to death with a meat cleaver in a Jerusalem synagogue in worship? What would happen if a Jew went into a mosque and did that? So our, our president is always counseling the Israeli government practice restraint, restraint, restraint. Doesn't the nation have a right to protect its citizenry and its borders? For crying out loud. I mentioned these altercations in the Middle East. Not one was initiated by Israel. Not one. Not one. Now our president says, let's go easy on Iran and their nuclear intentions. And he states in his State of the Union address, you think I'm speaking against the president. You're missing the point. I'm just responding to what he said. He said, if any members of Congress uh, seek to initiate a tighter sanctions against Iran, I will veto it, says he. What a message that is to give to the rogue state of Iran, which now has taken over Yemen. Do you know that? Do you know? They've taken over Yemen. They're stirring up things in Syria. Saudi Arabia is shaking in their boots against uh, Iran, and our president says no, no more sanctions against them. The sanctions are working. Are you kidding me? They're so close to going nuclear, Saudi Arabia has picked up its nuclear efforts. Saudi Arabia. Why is this all happening? What's the deal with the Jews? Why is there the Jewish problem, as they said in Nazi Germany? We need a solution to the Jewish problem. It's because of spiritual darkness. That's why. Get rid of the Jews, and you call into question the integrity of God. That's what it's all about. But I tell you, as it says in Numbers, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The evidence of the veracity of scripture, the truthfulness of scripture, is the existence of Jews today. Six million perished in Germany. Overwhelming. You know what's almost as overwhelming? The fact that six million survived Nazi Germany. How do you survive the Third Reich, as powerful as it was? Six million survived, and there are 13 million Jews in the world today. How do you explain it? Great nations have come and gone. A people displaced from its land for over 2,000 years is now living in the land. How do you explain it? Except as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them. God is protecting his people chosen for virtue? No. Chosen to manifest human nature, sinful. Divine nature, gracious. Nobody demonstrates the sinfulness of humankind more than my people. And what an opportunity through our sinfulness for God's grace to be manifested. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. You are the apple of my eye. That's not stuff from a Jewish guy. That's from Bible stuff. Well, actually, it is from a Jewish guy who wrote that in the Bible. Sorry about that. 
Uh, be careful, folks, as uh, increasingly um, there's an orchestrated effort to uh, hold Israel responsible for just about everything. Be careful to not get caught up with non-factual information, the likes of which I showed you or I told you about was happening in Nablus. Now, by the way, if you're not sure I'm telling you the truth, then go with me. I dare you. In May. And I'll show you the same thing. By the way, a little bit of an advertisement for Israel. I wish every Christian had a chance to go while you're able. Why? You know, I sat down to study for Genesis 35, Genesis 34, 35, and I saw Shechem. Oh, and I get this visual. I know where it is. I know where it sits. I know where it looks like. Bethel is mentioned. I know exactly where it is, 10 miles north of Jerusalem. That's what happens when you come back from Israel. Scripture, Old and New Testament, comes absolutely alive. If you're interested in going, let me know. I'll tell you about it. And if you make the cut, be glad to let you go. <laughs> but no earrings. No earrings. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thanks for spelling things out for us in Genesis. As Jacob was, so we have a tendency to be knowing you and yet drifting from you. And now we find out, but we can repent and come back. Not too late. Yes, we have forfeited certain blessing. That is to say, the experience of your presence, but we've not forfeited your presence. As you were faithfully with Jacob, in spite of his unfaithfulness, so too you are with us. As you are with Israel, keeping your promise to bring them into the land, though they don't deserve it, so too we know you are faithful to bring us into our place of promise, heaven, though we too are undeserving. Thank you for your ways. They're not ours. They're lofty and they're wonderful. And thank you, O oh God of all grace, for wanting us to be motivated by your grace and nothing else. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.